for helping me uh, uh, get, the, get the noise out, um, getting the sound out there in our gymnasium um, would be an extra use for it as well. Um, what I'd like to do is go to uh, the scriptures here, and before we do so, I kind of want to give a long introduction. And uh, I want to uh, um, imagine in your mind a football field and a half. And about a um, 225 feet wide rectangle. And I want to describe to you one of the seven wonders of the world that the Apostle Paul would have seen. As he walked the road to Ephesus, he would have seen it from a long way off, shining as the sunlight reflected in its brilliance. A colossal temple, 450 feet long, 225 feet wide. By the way, a football field's width is 160 feet. So, one and a half football fields long and um, uh, about one and a half or so, uh, or about a, about a uh, one and a half football fields wide as far as the, what the width is. With 127 marble columns that were four feet thick in diameter, 60 feet high. I don't know how high the steeple is here, but probably close to that. And each column taking a stonemason who would chisel that out of the marble in modern-day Turkey today would take him 50 years to make. White marble, layered in gold. This temple with artwork and statues close enough on the shore of the sea for the sea to splash on it. It was a stunning sight, and as that Mediterranean sun would shine down on that. It would, it would, it would be a blazing sight and, and recognizable by anyone from a long distance. The guy who listed the seven wonders of the world in his day, Antipater of Sidon's, said this about it. This is the guy who said, these are the seven wonders of the world. He said this, I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots and the state of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the Sun, which was a huge statue, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, the pyramids of Giza, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. In other words, the guy who said, these are the seven wonders of the world, he says, this temple to Artemis, or Diana in Ephesus, was the supreme wonder of the world. Life in Ephesus was centered around this building. Feasts, trade, ceremonies, the economy, community life. If you were a casual visitor to Ephesus, and imagine going back a couple thousand years ago, and you're taking a tour to Ephesus, you would have obviously concluded, whatever else you got from visiting that city, you've obviously concluded that the temple and everything it stood for there was a big deal to the Ephesians. And people would actually come from afar to see this very thing and buy the souvenirs of Artemis or Diana. So Paul rolls in. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18 through 20. He plants the gospel, starting in the synagogue in Acts 18. 
Then he goes back again and he further instructs in the school of somebody named Tyrannus for two years. And God the Spirit starts to work through the Word of God and the Gospel in Ephesus. And starts to have a significant influence after many turn to Christ and renounce the cult of Diana and they start burning their cult literature even. The city starts to shake spiritually. And a local silversmith named Demetrius riles up the people as he sees his pockets starting to get less filled with gold from his trade of making idols. And he riles up the people into a riot and he gets his fellow craftsmen in a rage about the effects of this new way on their business of making silver Diana shrines. And he says this, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia Minor, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. And when everybody hears this, the crowd hears this, remember, the, this, this temple is this, the center of life in Ephesus and even the rest of Asia. And known throughout the world, when they heard this, the scriptures say in Acts 19.28, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul's kind of out of the scene, and they get a couple of his acquaintances, some men he's, he's a, this, uh, who seem to be leaders of this uh, movement, this, this movement of churches in Ephesus. And it, Paul then comes out to the crowd um, that's gathered in the amphitheater in a frenzy. And when they see him, because remember, they're the, he's the guy they're, they're pinning all this on, disrupting their lives, turning this world, their world's upside down. They chant with one voice for two hours this phrase. Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. And that's the city that the Spirit had inserted the gospel of Christ as supreme king and redeemer into. Disciples were made. House churches were multiplying. By the time you get to Acts 20, there's a team of pastors that's put in place and installed over these clusters of house churches in the city. And then Paul leaves in Acts chapter 20 and hands this work over. The rest of the book of Acts tells us that he's eventually put in house arrest in Rome. And during that time, he writes an incredible letter that we looked at one portion of last night about the eternal promise plan of God for the ages and God's eternal purposes for the church and how he's made the body of Christ, the church, a place to belong through the blood of Christ where everybody's equal at the cross. I hate to interrupt you, but they're not being able to stay connected inside. So Birch asks, anybody's on Wi-Fi, if they could disconnect their phones so that the people inside can get the... If you're somehow you're connected to the church Wi-Fi, can you just... Disconnect because it's really limited. And that might be a reason why they're getting disconnected in there. So he writes this letter to the Ephesians, this, these, these church, this church here. And he talks about how God's made the body of Christ, the church, a place to belong 
through the blood of Christ, or everybody's equal at the cross, and they've been raised and seated with Christ to reign with Christ and entrusted with a grand mission to display to the world in their lives together and the message of Messiah that He is the risen, ascended King who is to have all things under His feet. Ephesians 1, verses 21 through the end, as Supreme Lord. And we saw last week in that letter that the family of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, the bride, the household of God, is the bullseye center of His promise plan that He shows off to the world His diverse wisdom to the whole universe by. And Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 3 that his life mission given to him by the King of Kings was to proclaim the wealth of Christ to the Gentiles and to unfold the page in God's book that had been folded over for the church to see what the house law, the the house plan, the administration for this entity of the church of Christ was so that the world would know God's glory in Christ. Well, after Paul had written that letter, a few years had passed. And Paul's protege, Timothy, was in charge of establishing the church in Ephesus with a team of pastors there. And Paul writes an instruction manual for how the church needed to be embedded in the building up of the family of God by aligning herself with a household plan of God. And he lays out proper leader, leader structure of pastors, proper ministries, servants called deacons, women to assist, solid teaching, the use, proper use of the law of God, relationships to the government, removal of sin and leadership, honor of leadership, Attention, attention to personal growth, proper view of wealth and, and service, uh, what to avoid, what to cling to, what the opposition would look like, and why it was all worth it, even dying for it. So he writes First Timothy for that. And in First Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, he boils it all down to the simple truth that when the church is aligned in its focus, its purpose, its structures, and obedience to a life built on and based out of the gospel of the risen King, she gleams brighter and longer than that marble temple an Artemis could ever dream of. So turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. First Timothy 3, 14 through 16. The Scriptures say this, These things write I to you, hoping to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. What I want us to see from these verses is this one truth that I want you to walk away with today. God's way of structuring our church is crucial to our mission of building His faith family. God's way of structuring our church is crucial to our mission of building His faith family. Notice there in verse 14 what He says. These things write I to you, hoping to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long that you may know how you ought. There was something that was important enough to not be able to wait till Paul was there face to face and in person. And Timothy needed this 
And the church of Ephesus needed this. And us, by extension, needed this to be written down. And here we have it today. Amazing how the Holy Spirit works, right? It was important enough not to be able to wait till Paul got there. Remember, Ephesus was this church where Paul told his task, his twofold task, to proclaim the unsearchable wealth of riches of Christ and the Gentiles and to reveal God's household plan. But they needed this information ASAP. Why? Why was this so important? Because what was plaguing them is what has plagued Jesus' church for thousands of years now. And God's Word is still saying this to us today is like people of all times we tend to drift away from what the Bible says to what we're used to or what other people do uh, we live in a culture don't we today where everyone wants to follow his or her own style and everybody thinks they're unique but they follow everybody else right everyone wants to follow their own style whether that's traditions of men or the trends of the moment and I want you to understand that cannot be true of the church how we order our church needs to be according to the structures of the New Testament. Laid out in the New Testament. Especially since Paul said that's his job to show us. But these household guidelines matter. Why do they matter? Look what he says in verse 15. But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul's statement of purpose in this so that you will know in the house of God or God's household calls for a couple things for us to help us to understand. That word house of God is not this building right here. That idea of house of God is the family of God, the household of God. The household of God. Remember what he said in Ephesians 2. Where does God dwell? And believers, they're his holy temple, his dwelling place. So the house of God here is the household of God. It's a family of God. It's actually the same word that's used previously in the chapter, chapter 3 and verse 4, when it says that in a, a pastor, a bishop, overseer, elder, a pastor, needs to be able to rule his own household. Well, okay? Um, in verse 4, in verse 5, uh, there the, the word, his own house. It's also used uh, later on in verse 12 with deacons. The servants of the church, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses, their own households, their families well. Because the number one uh, item on the resume of a pastor, uh, 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 and then by extension as well, the deacons that will follow, uh, a key thing is how their family life is. You can't hide in your family, right? <laughs> that's who you are with your family, that's that's... Good, good sense of, of who you are. And so that's the idea. The household, the family of God, which he says in chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, which is, and there's, there's no definite article in the, in, in the Greek in the original. What I mean by that is this. The Greek language says, which is a church of God. The family of God, which is a church of God. A church of God. In other words, the family, you may know how you ought to Conduct, behave, the idea is conduct, behave yourself in the household, the family. He says, no, we're the living God. This is, this is the reason we're the church of the living God. This is the reason for proper conduct for us. The family of God is, is God's living church. He's alive in us. And we've been made alive in Him, Ephesians 2 says. 
The other gods that enticed the Ephesian citizens into pagan practices were dead. But the God of the church is alive. And we're to throb with this, this divine power that, that, that's inside of us because stuff in life. And what was that given for the Israelites? Israel law was given ground. So I'm going to translate it to foundation, a church at Ephesus. What would be the first thing they would think of? Those 127 pillars and that temple Artemis. 127 pillars. Four feet, 50 years to carve of one man's artwork. Beautiful. By the way, they erected one. You can see the ruins. There's one pillar that they kind of reconstructed the left to get to an idea of it uh, here. 60 feet high. 127 pillars. And what did that pillar do? It held something up. Saying this about the church of Jesus that the local church built on Jesus Christ the truth is a pillar and bulwark for the truth. It's, it, it, it displays, it holds up the truth of God. Like a statue. When you go, if you visit uh, some of the museums in New York City um, and you see some of the statues, uh, they're, 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 on a, they're on a pedestal. They hold them up. They're usually higher than the normal person, so everybody can see him. The crowds can gather around and see him. Why are they like that? So all can see it. Paul to the Philippians, the whole fourth, the word of life, so the world can see it. And the local church puts the truth of Jesus Christ on display. Now, how does it do that? It does it through its message, and it also does it through its manner, so that you may know how to conduct yourself, right? It does it through the, through the, through the, through the word of Christ, and it does it through the life of Christ being ministered in the church of Jesus Christ. It puts Jesus Christ on display. So it's a pillar. It supports, holds up the truth as a beautiful thing. Adorns the gospel. But he also says um, the, uh, the grounds or the bulwark. It protects the truth. It makes sure it doesn't fall. Isaiah 59.14 said, Truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. And so, uh, progress is made when we turn away from the truth. And so, there's a stand against sin and against falling away from the Scriptures. It doesn't make us popular, but it pleases the Lord. Buildings would have many pillars, 127 in that temple. There, They would support the roof. They would rest in that foundation. And so, Paul sees the church as a temple and indicates this is a foundation that supports the truth of the Christian faith. Truth of God. What does that mean? It means we have a couple of responsibilities here. We're to hold it firm. Hold the truth firmly. So it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. And as we hold it high, we are not hiding it as well. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. To hold the truth firm is the defense and the proactive ministry of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel and also the conduct of our lives. You understand that your lives may be the only book that unbelievers may see. Gypsy Smith, that evangelist of the last century, early last century, said there are, for, there, 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 are, there are five gospels and most people haven't read the first four. By that he meant Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're the fifth. Paul told the Corinthians that you're a living letter. You hold forth the, the word of Christ. You're the fragrance of Christ. To some, you're the fragrance of life. To some, you're going to be the fragrance of death. That's just how it is. 
right? The same sun that softens the wax, hardens the clay. That's the idea there with the gospel. But you are to hold it high. And so Paul's uh, Paul is saying that that's what the church's task is to do. Now you say, well, what's the message? What's the thing we're supposed to hold high? And Paul can't help but talk about Jesus again. Look at the next verse, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. This is an early creed, an early hymn. Many scholars think this is this is something that was put to music and sung as as uh, as, as as some of the foundational aspects of our faith here. Paul says, without controversy. That's, this is this is what that means. Beyond question, indisputably, beyond all question, without a doubt, without controversy. And he outlines the great Christian truths with the, 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 the unanimous consent of Christians here through the Word of God. And he says, what does he say? Beyond all doubt, what? Great is the mystery of godliness. Do you hear an Ephesian phrase echoing in that? A phrase that would have echoed for two hours during that riot? Great is the goddess Diana. And Paul says, no, beyond all doubt, great is the mystery of godliness. Why does he say the mystery of godliness? Why doesn't he just say the gospel? Right? This is, this, is, this is the story of the gospel right here in verse 16. Friends, godliness is why God saves us, right? Do you understand that God saves us to put his nature in us so that we're like him? And Second Peter says we are partakers of his divine nature. And one day he's going to finish that fully. When we're in heaven, we call that glorification. That's our future salvation. There's the past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. That's our future salvation. And we, are, we will be fully glorified with God. There will be no sin, and we will be like God through the work of Christ. It's a phenomenal truth. That's where all of this is heading. Pure saints, robed in, 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 in white robes of righteousness. Paul says, this is a great thing. This is a, this is a mega thing, a mega thing. Great is this mystery of godliness. And here he unpacks these truths that, that our, our lives and the conduct of the church are hinged to. And what is it? Jesus, the life of Christ that we've received through faith and now ministers out the presence of Christ in our words and our deeds. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. The temple worship there of Artemis or Diana and Ephesus had all kinds of secret cult mysteries, higher knowledges that would that would that would give you uh, success and prosperity in your business or fertility in your family or you name it. And Paul says this is the thing that is great: the mystery of God in flesh, who became God with us, who has united Himself to us, who died for our sins, who is raised in glory. Godliness. This is 
what it's all about. The church is to grow in godliness together, godlikeness together. No, we are not like God. Excuse me. No, we are not God, but we are becoming like God. Except without all the omnis, right? We're coming like God in his moral character. That's what holiness is. That's what sanctification is. Very important. And, and, and this, is the, this is the mystery, the promised plan, God's redemptive plan so that, that was kept secret and revealed little by little, but it's now fully revealed. And Paul is, is glorifying God for his actions that form the basis of the gospel and the results that, that come from accepting and receiving it should be godliness of a church. So that Jesus is magnified and glorified. So that our lives and our words say to the world, Jesus is better. And our families and our works, uh, our, 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 our place of work and, and, our, and our neighborhoods and our daily commutings, etc. Say to the world, my life is under the feet of Jesus. He has full say. I, as the song says, surrender all. That shows that what we believe is what we believe. That shows to the world who wonders, is this real? Is this sincere? It shows it. Well, godliness shows itself in our proper conduct there as a church, as a temple of God, and it's hinged right here, fastened and verse to verse 16 on the gospel of Christ which you receive. It's the message of Christ, and it's the manner of Christ. His word and his life in us. It's a fragrance or the stench of death for those who don't want to hear it or see it. So there's a couple characteristics here that stand out in these verses. How we conduct ourselves as members of God's family is to be godly, like God. How do we do that? We go to His Word and we see what His Word has laid out. We see what He has um, what He has displayed here in His Word for how we are to order our lives. You understand, God's God God has God has dictated to us. In his grace, because this is the good way, this is the good life of what a flourishing life is in our families, with our work situations, whether you have a good boss or a bad boss, whether you are the boss, um, in our, in our, in our uh, action, actions and reactions to the government, in our, um, in our care uh, for, for, for the needs of people, God's laid these things out, his household order here. And so we're going to study how God structures his household, his family of families, because the Bible says this enhances here, verse 15, where the support of the truth displays the truth. It enhances our witness of making more disciples, preserving his truth, glorifying our risen, exalted Lord as we align ourselves with what God's plan is for his church and the scriptures. Whether we're a gathered church or whether we're scattered, scattered uh, during the uh, remainder of the week, so we're going to go on a journey to do that. Everything marriages to, to parenting to discipling relationships, our our homes as basis for for God's kingdom, our our work, our inner life. Here we're going to look at what the scriptures say about how what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ that is conducting itself in the way that He's prescribed uh, in His Word, and so. We're going to look at um, next week what God's household order is for our families, for the shining out of His glory, because churches, the family of God, is made up of individual families. Individual families are the building blocks of the family of God, right? Yours and my family, and we're going to look at His order for that 
uh, in the Word of God again um, to the uh, to this to this church at Ephesus. So um, what what we can take away from these verses here is that God is very serious about His church conducting themselves in a way that shows they are holding out the truth and living in alignment with that truth, in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is a powerful witness to the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but taking a servant like